Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this uh, Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on Humour. I'm Simon Glendinning and I'm the Director of the Forum for European Philosophy and I'm delighted to welcome two wonderful speakers tonight to engage with this theme, Julian Bergini and Hardeep Singhkohli. Now I think I should say a quick word about how we managed to get Hardeep here. (laughs) Um, This is funny. (laughs) He himself is taking a break for us from his tour uh, called Indian Takeaway, which is running right through to July at the moment, up and down the country. And he says that in that he's on a mission to find the best Indian takeaway in the UK. And at his show, he orders one live on the stage, from the stage, for delivery to the theatre. And then while it's on its way, he tries to cook up something better himself, all the while sharing recipe tips, anecdotes and stories of his shared Scottish and Indian heritage. It is hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny and delicious, it says. Excellent. But what's he doing here? Why is he taking a break for us? Well, two and a half years ago, I was in a queue for a comedy gig at the Edinburgh Festival. And I was standing behind a very well-known man of Scottish and Indian heritage in that queue. I tried not to look, but I kept, you know, looking. (laughs) And then he started looking back. And I thought he was sort of taking the mickey of me looking at the famous person. In fact, he was looking at me. He said... Don't I know you? <laughs> and I said, no, 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 it's me that knows you. <laughs> but he said, no, no, haven't we met somewhere before? I recognise you from somewhere. Well, we fished around a bit, and it turned out that he knew my mother. <laughs> and this, this is before you had the beard. No, it wasn't before I had the beard. <laughs> no, I was not, certainly not as well-shaven as my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, despite my beard, or <laughs> he, he recognised her in me. Well, it was all rather lovely, actually. And, in fact, we ended up the evening holding hands. <laughs> under the instructions of the uh, comedian we were both going to see that night. And, indeed, we exchanged email addresses. And after what seemed to me an appropriate pause in our developing relationship, <laughs> I invited him... <laughs> to participate in tonight's event, and I'm incredibly glad and grateful that he he agreed. That's great. And to join Hardeep in discussion on humour, I'm also delighted to welcome back Julian Bergini, long-time editor of the Philosopher's Magazine, author of numerous books, philosophy books, essays, articles, and blogs, including, he tells me, a piece in the sun. I don't know how often they get philosophy in the sun... On, on philosophy of the Simpsons. <laughs> so with uh, a hashtag of LSE humour, which you're uh, invited to use, if anybody can pick up a signal in here, well done. Um, we're going to explore humour with these two tonight. It's, it's distinction from pure jokes and comedy like that, and it's regional and cultural variations and more. So uh, for tonight's dialogue, a big welcome from everybody for Hardeep Singh Kohli and Julian Bajini. Thank 
Thanks, Simon. Um, I must say, I do feel like, you know, obviously Hardeep C expert here. Um, in, in, intellectuals of any variety, philosophers, academics, tend to sort of spoil humour. I don't know if you've read any sort of books or articles in which people tend to sort of analyse what humour is and get to the bottom of it. Um, they tend to not be very funny and, uh, not be, and leave you feeling unsatisfied. There are some exceptions. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, if you've come across this, have you sort of like ever come across a theory of humour that works for you, or does it always kill it? Well, it's a little bit the, the great glory of it. I mean, first of all, can I just say what a deep honour it is to be at the LSE? I mean, simply to walk through the campus is a, a bit of a thrill. So actually, to be here in an official capacity is um, thank you very much. Um, it's a little bit like that that Wilden quote, which I always get wrong, um, which is "You'll never mistake uh, a ray of sunshine for an angry Scotsman." And it's that notion of you don't quite know what it is that makes something funny. Mm. So you, you can analyse it to about 70%. Um, but the remaining 30% is the great beauty uh, that's either the great intersection in the Venn diagram of life or the exclusion in, in that part of yeah. life. I mean, it's fascinating. If anyone blogs, I don't know if anyone goes to look at um, websites and stuff, and having you know written and been in a sitcom for Channel 4, I was never quite as prepared for the vitriol you get for working in comedy. Mm. And I don't say this lightly, and I really don't say this lightly, I think if I'd been a paedophile, I would have been less barraged online for my paedophilia than I was for my comedy. Now think about that for a moment. And that's bizarrely not a joke. Anything you don't laugh at tonight is not a joke. <laughs> Just so that you're clear. So there is that much vitriol about comedy. There's that much passion about comedy. If you looked at Cooked and Bombed, uh, which is a website that seems to centre around the, the, the hagiography of Chris Morris, who ought to be celebrated massively, um, the hatred they have for other communities, and the hatred I have from trolls on Twitter uh, occasionally is brilliant. There's a great story I have to share with you that happened in, in Bristol. I had a gig in Bristol in the evening. Um, I've been criticised uh, by Julian for not playing the South West enough. <laughs> and in the daytime I was there with Radio 2 making a series of documentaries. And I love Bristol. I think Bristol's... I nearly moved there in the 90s. It's that good. Um, well... <laughs> and I bigged it up to my producer and researcher who'd never been to Bristol before. And... As we wandered through the town, people were so friendly and so nice. And I just felt how right I was, that kind of that chest-expanding smugness of indication that um, I'm particularly used to on Radio 4. Um, <laughs> until this one bloke shouted across the street at me, absolutely true, you're not funny. <laughs> <laughs> now, there must have been about 80 people in the shopping centre, yet I knew he was talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I said, excuse me, you're not funny, you think you're funny, but you're not funny. Now, of all the things he could have picked up on, it was my humour that he found, because I'm a big lad and I'm from Glasgow, I mean, knife crimes is a GCSE in Glasgow, so you're brave to, and I'm a Sikh as well, we're a warrior nation, I'm more of a warrior than a warrior, but, um, you know, so incensed was he, yeah. you know. And I think that's interesting. The passion it evokes is fascinating. It is. It's, it's like almost offensive when you find something very unfunny that's supposed to be, isn't it? I mean, people do get very, very annoyed about it. And I wonder if it's connected with 
some sense in which there's something very sort of personal about humour, or it gets to the heart of us in some way. I mean, it's like you know, personal ads, don't they? They always say good sense of humour. Um, you know, as if you'd advertise someone with a bad sense of humour or, you know, no <laughs> sense of humour. You know, you know, please do not apply if you have a sense of humour because, you know... It, it, but it, so it becomes like a joke because everyone says it, but we do know that it's, that's a very personal thing. Someone who someone thinks, oh, we've got a great sense of humour, you meet them and you just can't stand them because they're just like, making sort of annoying wise cracks or they're always being smart aleck. But so when, you, when, when you've got someone whose humour aligns with yours, that seems to be one of the most important personal connections, doesn't it? Yeah, but also it's... If, okay, I'm trying to f- f- fly quite a complex cluck kite here. Um, it's about a basis in reality, mm. actually. I don't really tell jokes. I, I love jokes. Um, I've written about four good jokes in my life. Any Hindus here? Any Hindus here? Great. One of my favourite jokes... I've written it, but <laughs> it's nonetheless one of my favourites. Is One thing you'll never hear a Hindu say... Ah, oh, well, you only live once. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, in, that, in terms of a narrative, beginning, middle and an end, I don't need to say any more. That explains itself. That's the beauty of gags and of jokes. And we in this country are the best at it. I mean, that's just as much uh, an affliction as, as a celebration of our language. Um, interestingly, um, I don't know about you, but I've got one friend, at least one friend, who the minute there is a, 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 a catastrophe, a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions in the world, I know less than 60 minutes later I will get a, I will get a gag, as I did. And I, I, t- I tell this to you because I think it's very important, um, and I would exhort, exhort you not to laugh at this. If you do, you will be judged. Um, a joke about Oscar Pretorius about what man hasn't woken... I'll edit some of it out... Um, what man hasn't woken up legless on Valentine's Day and wanted to murder his partner? Now, I just literally, with my phone in my hand, went, and I work in comedy, right? I felt that. You have to admire the craft of it. And although it's based in reality, what it is, it takes a certain sort of mind, because the empathy I'm looking to create with you I'm not sure there is any empathy other than that of a simply representing the facts mm. that anyone knows what they are um, to you in a way that's going to make you laugh and touch the dark side of you, um, the, the, kind of the, the kind of the demonic side of you, diabolical within us all. Within us all. Um, the difference between that and humour, I think, is humour is based in something of a genuine reality, is an extrapolation of a reality. Very interesting today, Richard Breyer has passed away. Mm. Um, fantastic comedy actor. And it just led me to think about... Uh, and people were talking about uh, a good life and, uh, the good life and um, uh, Monica the Glen and stuff he did. That's very interesting. If you look back at the single most successful sitcom writer this country uh, has provided, it's the late John Sullivan, who I had the great honour and privilege and pleasure and confusion to work with for a while. Um, and if you look at Richard Bryce's thing that most appealed to me is ever-decreasing circles. Does anyone remember that? Ever-decreasing circles? Okay. Park that. John <laughs> Sullivan, uh, Fools and Horses, and Just Good Friends and Citizen Smith. Does anyone remember any of those? Now, what you probably remember are the laughs, the chandelier scene. 
Del Boy leaning on the bar that's no longer there. Brilliant, iconic, visually funny moments. But actually, there are great moments of pathos in Fools and Horses. Massive, massive moments of potential tragedy in Just Good Friends. I mean, Just Good Friends was ostensibly a narrative about two people from completely different class backgrounds who were destined to be together and could never quite make it work. How tragic is that? <laughs> it's Romeo and Juliet for the, the Thatcherite age, you know? If love was allowed in a privatised economy. <laughs> That's a joke, all right. So you know. <laughs> but it wasn't, because not enough of you laughed. I thought I'd make an economic reference at the LSA. Oh, fucking bother again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so much more Keynesian. But, but the, the, the reality, you know, that, that, you know, in the sense that there's a view of reality and you, you need to kind of share it in order to, to find it funny. So often you, you, you don't find something funny if you think that behind it is some kind of nasty worldview, for example. I mean, so it's not just that you're sort of like, you know, this is when people talk about, oh, politically incorrect humour and people being humourless if they don't laugh at jokes which are politically incorrect but I think that they, they, you genuinely don't find them funny if you're detecting in that any hint of like nastiness, do you know what I mean? And yet, but it sails close to the wind with nastiness comedy, doesn't it? I mean you know, this, this question, a lot, of, a lot of the great sort of comedy characters are terrible people and it seems that you know, a lot of the ones I like, they're the kind of people whereby you, they really are awful but there's something about them, which stops you simply laughing 100% at them. I know the at them, with them thing's a bit of a joke, but if you take Alan, Par- Alan Partridge, you know, uh, God, Anything Alan Partridge. I mean, the thing about Partridge is, and I, I heard someone else say it's not an original thought for me, is that the problem is he's this ridiculous character, but like every man recognises a bit of himself in Alan Partridge. So you know he's a complete arse, but the reason, if you were just laughing at him 100%, as if he were some, someone from an alien species, I don't think it'd be so funny. It, you have to recognise yes. yourself in it, don't you? That, that's the point, and I think my issue with the, the Pesorius joke was <coughs> I doubt any of us in this room could recognise ourselves as the writer of such a joke. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit like, and men don't deny that you do this. I'm not saying women don't, I can't speak on their behalf. Um, but when you're in that hotel and you're flicking through and you do land on the porn channel, you do just wait till the screen blurs again, till you have to start paying for it, right? It's something all men do, particularly Punjabi Glaswegians, because we don't pay for anything, you know, <laughs> twice fold. Um, I'm, there's a seat gentleman there who's looking at me with the most judgmental eyes <laughs> um, you can imagine. There he's laughing. Um, you're absolutely right. I think we're all slightly guilty of enjoying the car crash, but not necessarily relating to it. Um, but there is... Um, and Partridge is a brilliant example. I mean, if all Armando... Um, I was at school with Armando, uh, and we started together in the same office, so I speak with a huge amount of affection and just the most enormous amount of respect. But again, if you look at the thick of it, what is it about Peter Capaldi's character, right? Why is he actually a hero of our times? I read a piece in The Telegraph yesterday. I'm sorry, it's important to know what the opposition's doing. Um, And I did write for them. Uh, I'll take their money, but not their politics. Um, And it was talking about what's happening in the Department of uh, Education under Gove and how it's turned into uh, an extended episode of The Thick of It. Um, and I think the, uh, DFE now stands for Department of Fuck Everything, is what they're calling it internally. 
and you read the reports, you know, people have, civil servants have simply walked away because of what's going on. Now, that to me, it, it couldn't be more candid uh, that there is this, uh, Capaldi has picked up in that character. If you know Peter Capaldi, as I do, a lovelier, gentler character you would not meet. But clearly somewhere inside Peter is the devil. <laughs> uh, you know, what is that? Set fire to tears is a famous uh, uh, Malcolmism. Uh, what's the other favourite one is... Uh, and this, just think about this for a minute, okay? If you can think beyond the language, this is genius. Uh, get the fuck in or fuck the fuck off. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant writing. I think I'm alone in thinking. <laughs> um, but also, it's that thing of the. And it, it, this is why I know I'm not a, a comic genius. I mean, apart from how I've died on my arse in front of you this evening. (laughs) Seriously, for a moment, is that I'm not... I don't suffer... I don't go to the dark side with my work. Like, if you look at the... the, There's a litany of of comics who, from Hancock to Merton to, I think, Joe Brand to some extent, there is, you know, it seems almost anyone that's worked in comedy at the highest level um, has suffered, you know, even... I mean, it's not for me to say, but I think Steve Coogan has had his his depression um, swathed in millions of pounds and a, kind of an amazing lifestyle. But anyone that knows anything about his life realizes there's some dysfunctionality about him. I'm not dysfunctional in that way, so I know I'm not a comedy genius. But it does remind <laughs> me. Well, you know what I mean? It's sort of when you hang around with enough of them, you realize that there is a recurring theme. Um, but there is a lovely joke uh, where a guy in Glasgow um, turns up to a psychotherapist and the psychotherapist says, uh, can I help you, sir? And he goes, I'm passing through town, but I have these terrible issues about myself. I, I can't see the point of my existence. This isn't a midlife crisis. I've had this crisis since I can remember since I was a child. Um, nothing makes sense. I genuinely can't understand not only why I should make it to the end of the day, but why I should even attempt to make it to lunchtime. I, ca- I can't... You know, the, the chasm before me isn't just before me, it's around me and behind me and above me and below me. Can you help me? Psychotherapist thinks, fuck. He's not coming back. Um, <laughs> why? You know what you need? You need a good laugh. What you need to... Coco the Clown uh, has just arrived in Glasgow. Why don't you go, spend the afternoon, watch him... He'll cheer you up. He's hilarious. He's so funny. Do you have a great time? The guy starts crying. The therapist says, what's wrong? The guy says, I am cooking. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a joke. Because it's self-contained. But I think there's something of the disconnect. That 30% I was talking about, we don't own. It's fascinating. As a, I don't know if it is as a, as a lecturer... Um, or, or someone that teaches. Teaching's a massive part of my life. Both my parents were involved in education, and um, it's something I'd hope to do more of as I become less bookable. Um, but I think sometimes as a teacher, I've seen teachers that didn't know they were inspiring. Like some nights on stage, I'll get a laugh for something, and I'm like, really? You thought that was... I? But you didn't laugh at that thing before, which was brilliant, and, you know. And then, some, you know, so th- there is that thirty percent. I think that thirty percent is a disconnect. I mean, it's funny to think of it as an example because I must admit, I, I mean, I haven't tried t- 
enough. I'm, I, and people behind it, I respect. I'm sure I'd get into it, but I, I never got into it when I tried to watch it because it seemed to me it was too it was too it was too na- it was too nasty. Basically, there's nothing to like there. Whereas, like you know, I'm one of the yes minister generation, whereby they're buffoons and they're kind of likable. This seemed to be full of vitriol to me. It's, it's, it was full of hatred for these people. And now I haven't seen it enough, so perhaps if I got into it, I'd see the other side. But you get the comedy. You get the art of your time, mm. if you see what I mean. You know, if you look at the television we have just now, um, our television uh, is... There are more bones in a KFC meal than, you know, in our television. It's spineless. Mm. We, have, we celebrate the mediocre. We have used up the notion of celebrity to an extent that... Um, if you really want to piss me off, call me a celebrity. If you really want to annoy me, describe me as famous. I hate both those terms because they don't mean anything anymore. So we live in a time where uh, conspicuous consumption has made its way into the arts. You know, for example, today I was just reading. Um, I live in East London. Okay. Um, and <laughs> a Banksy apparently is for sale in Miami for quarter of a million, £300,000. I don't know if you've read this. Uh, it was removed from the side of a, a building in East London and taken there. Those are the times we live in. A, a piece of work that is a, a coruscating critique of slave labour and poundland is for sale for half a million dollars in Miami. And no one sees the irony. No, that's the funniest thing I've heard all week. It's only Monday. But nonetheless, <laughs> so we, we live in a, a beautifully uh, unironic time, yeah. uh, and I think that is that's the that's why the thick of it is brutal. We live in brutal times. There's no compassion, you know. Yeah. Uh, on one hand, we, you know we are hoist by our own hypocrisy because we celebrate the Paralympics, and yet we have a government that wants to get rid of disability benefit and absolutely hammer those least able to support themselves. Mm. So that, to me, seems to be the hypocrisy of our age. That's sort of why I'm checking out. God, you don't know this. I'm moving back to Glasgow in a couple of months, probably packing the business in. I'm going to run a little kitchen, because I've just... I I can't decide whether it's funny if I tell you that I'm having a midlife crisis. I don't know if that in itself is funny, or the fact that I'm having a midlife crisis and can't afford to get the therapy to help me out with the midlife crisis... (laughs) Neither of those are true, except the first one. Um, <laughs> no, that's not true either. Cookie, but, cookies, it's but here's the other thing I, want to put, I meant to put to you earlier on about <coughs> cruelty. Okay, if I may, just put it to the floor. I'm going to describe a scenario, and I want you to put your hands up if you think it's funny. Um, there's a woman walking down the street, and she gets wolf whistled at, and as she looks up, she doesn't see a banana skin, and she slips on it and falls over and lands on her arse. Who thinks that's funny? Okay. Like bloody liberals. <laughs> okay. If I told you it was a man that slept on the banana skin and there was no wolf whistling, hands up who thinks that's funny. Hands up high Just, so I can see you. Okay, so gender is a factor there and the inherent sexism is a factor. Okay, keep your hands up if you think it was funny. Either man or a woman. Okay? If I told you that man or woman were in their 70s and with a walking stick, hand, keep your hands up if you still think it's funny. <laughs> right, you're just fucking dark, brother, yeah? <laughs> um, 
So I think, again, it's, these are the things, you know, it's these little bits of information that, is, you know, why is one funny? I think we'd all agree that if it was a young, vibrant young man, young, vibrant young man, a young, vibrant man that slipped on the banana skin, that's somehow funnier than if it's, um, you know, a man in his 60s with a walking stick. I mean, but the, I mean, a lot depends on, on the context, doesn't it? I mean, like, you used to say that, but, like, yeah, Mrs Doyle in, in Father Ted falling off a, a windowsill is very funny because there's something... The whole setup of it is, is absurd and ridiculous, even though she's an overworked, oppressed woman. I mean, part of the humour there is that she's so kind of uh, devoted to her task. The fascinating task. thing about that is Graham has sketched a character that is... Um, she is... The architect of her own downfall. She's yeah. completely compliant yeah. in her position in the patriarchy. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, in terms of I mean, think about you know, when things become funny and not funny, and, and is there anything not funny? I mean, there is the old people do say time makes a difference. So Blackadder goes forth. You know, is making humour at one of the most awful things in human history. But it's sufficiently long ago that you can just celebrate the absurdity of it, and you're not offending. <laughs> anyone who's literally just lived through it. There is that sort of time element as well. But there's also... I mean, it, it, it does always matter, doesn't it, who's saying it and where they're saying it. And, and, and these are the, the important things. So the same joke... I mean, you're saying, is this funny or is it not funny? Um, it, it, the same joke the same or the same scenario can be amusing d- depending on all sorts of things. Now, Slavoj Žižek, who's... Um, He's a funny guy in his own way, too. Um, he, he sort of tells a story about... He's from former Yugoslavia. And he was talking about how, you know, before the, the downfall of that regime, all these different ethnic groups who we, we know sort of turned on each other and, and you know, lots of bloody killing, they always used to tell these horrible jokes about each other. And that was, in a sense, a sign of being comfortable together. It was when the country started disintegrating that you couldn't tell those jokes anymore because it be- became dangerous. And there's that kind of thing that you can, you can have jokes based on even, even stereotypes, even, you know, even sort of most ridiculous, crude stereotypes, just as long as everyone's comfortable with that and they know there's no threat behind it. So, it, it, it if Marcus Brigstock were to tell the joke about a Punjabi man being mean, I would laugh at that because I know... Marcus's heart's mm. in the right place. I do this thing where we have the curry delivered on stage. And what's fascinating is, uh, ordinarily the owner of the restaurant and one of their workers will come. And I've noticed there are a lot of Eastern European waiting staff. Mm. right? Because I don't eat out Indian restaurants. I don't need to. Um, <laughs> cook it myself. Um, and I make this joke on stage now where I say, where are you from? The guy says, from Romania. I go, fucking immigrants. <laughs> Now, that's funny. It is. Um, <laughs> you may not know it, um, because I am the child of an immigrant. There is a context there, there's yeah. a tension there. Now, if Dick Griffin said it, yeah. it's a completely different matter. Um, and it's interesting you talk about the Balkans. I have um, very, very dear friends who are... One of them is Serbian, one of them is Croatian. I've, in fact, and a Croatian friend of mine is over, staying with me, literally arrived today... Um, and I used to have this joke when we had Balkans around saying, when we were talking, never to be talk about the Yugoslavian co- uh, conflict, and my kind of, you know, when I had to get up and dish out the food, my payoff was fucking Bosnians, right? And I always got a laugh, because I don't know any Bosnians. <laughs> I just think it's funny. 
to have that small-minded, completely ignorant prejudice against the Bosnians until one time I said it inadvertently in front of a Bosnian. It was not funny. Yeah. People that had laughed at it for years did not laugh at it that night. Mm. So I think what's interesting there is humour being controlled by third-party presence yeah. that I'm not even aware of. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think that's fascinating. I mean, I mean that's sort of often missed by people who complain about you know, polit- political correctness, um, which is always, always sort of tedious. Political correctness is actually just a, 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 an annoying word. What it, what it means is you know, being sensitive to injustice and in, inequality in society, really. Just yeah, the way of putting the pudding. lesbians, so what do you expect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's a joke. That's <laughs> <laughs> You've got to say it's a joke. You're the LSE now. <laughs> um, yeah, I realise she was not up, up on your agenda here, is it? <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, there's this, this, this... What's always missed is people always say, oh, there were double standards and hypocrisy. So, you know, you can say jokes about Christians if you have Father Ted, but you wouldn't have, you know, Imam Ted, would you? you wouldn't, and you say, well, no, because there's a completely different cultural situation of being, a, a, you know, a, a Christian in a, in, a, in a dominantly Christian country and being a Muslim in a dominantly Christian country However, where there's these there's issues. I think there's a massive issue around Islam, and there is a fear around Islam for us to make jokes about Islam and the reason are there any Muslims here? Right, you're fantastic people all of you in an unqualified way that's obviously nonsense Um, you're as statistically nice as any other racial or religious group Um, the problem it's a little bit okay if I can spin this one out because I think this is fascinating I think there need to be a whole lot more jokes about Muslims right Um, if you speak to any brown or black actor, um, the reason most of our brown and black actors, a lot of them have gone to America to work, is because they get much better work there. They also are allowed to play baddies. Okay? Most of the parts, that when EastEnders were putting out for uh, an Indian family, they said, we want an Indian family. How fucking patronising is that? Don't you want a family? that have the issues that any East End family have and then cast them brown. Yes? So there's nothing worse in a part I see black actor required. No, one of the fucking good actors what you want. Because I will I refuse for people to be shortlisted by their ethnicity. So if you look at the representation of Muslims on television in this country, can you think of the last time a Muslim bus driver took a pregnant woman to hospital where she delivered a healthy baby, thanks to him. No, it's happened. Can you remember the last time a Muslim cab driver in Yorkshire took a young, sick woman halfway across the county home when she had no money? No, but it's happened. The representation of Muslims in the media is that they're all fucking terrorists. And you know what? They're really not. There are more Irish terrorists than there are Islamic terrorists. It's a fact. Okay, so that's the problem. Until we've earned the right to know Muslims in a normal way, we've not earned the right to tell jokes about them. But I would argue, until we tell jokes about them and with them, we're never going to humanise the relationship. Do you know what I mean? People don't know Abdul or Zamina. What they know is Muslims. But it's got, come, it's got to come from understanding, hasn't it? So either you've got to make, yeah, as you say, you can, there are lots of things where it doesn't matter whether someone's Muslim, Christian, whatever, so you can just have a character, and you, you, so it's a normalising thing. And if you're going to have jokes, you're saying about Muslims, they've got to come from understanding. I think the problem is that most 
uh, people understanding is so limited, isn't it? People think, oh, we're going to think about Muslims. We're going to think about uh, things like that's forced marriages and terrorism. <laughs> and, and, and one and, and, white Muslim in the room. <laughs> but I mean, when you did, when you did, I mean, when you did meet the. <laughs> When you did meet the Magoons, I mean, that was an interesting series. I mean, because, I mean, it's difficult to remember what had been represented before that. But, I mean, were people shocked by the fact that you had, basically, Glas Regisic swearing like troopers and basically acting like lads, like any other kind, kind of thing? People were shocked. People didn't quite know how to criticise it because it was unprecedented. Mm. I'm not... I mean, unprecedented without a capital U. I mean, there were lots of things wrong with it. There was far too much swearing in it, to be honest, because people in the real world don't swear as much as I do. I'm from Glasgow, so it's part of our language. Um, but it was interesting. I speak to my son, my 19-year-old son, uh, about this um, at the football um, on Saturday and when there was a lot of language. And he said, one of the characters, I don't know if anyone saw it, but 1.2 million people saw it every Friday, so clearly not represented in this room. Um, <laughs> Bastards. Um, <laughs> there was one character in series one, a Welsh character called Paul, who was incredibly homophobic. Um, and really to the point where he couldn't, he bristled if he thought there was someone vaguely effeminate in the room. And I loved that character because what no one knew was in season two, which I started writing, um, and the channel had wanted me to write. Um, he realised that he was homophobic because he was, in fact, gay himself. And it was that classic, the best homophobes are the Secretary of State for Wales. Um, <laughs> you know, so I was operating, interestingly, on the level of homophobia, restaurants, parental, the relationship between the lead character and his father, sibling rivalry. That's what I was writing about. And the press were talking about it as a brown... Comedy, and I'm like, no, that's it's not about that. Mm. You know, I mean, the nicest, I mean, you know, the best. Nancy Bank Smith of the Guardian loved it, and Adrian Gill bizarrely loved it. Um, and I think I'm bound to say, I think they're two more insightful writers anyway. But a lot of people just, I'm, you know, I wasn't writing a brown comedy; I was writing a Glasgow comedy about a family. You know, and Sikhs swear, Sikhs drink, and Sikhs do stupid things like everyone else does. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of uh, a bit of a turn, perhaps, but I was thinking about you know what what you know what, do, what does make things funny, and I think a lot of the time in terms of you know jokes and humour, distinguish them. But uh, I, th- I think there's something in this that, that there's an overlap with with jokes. It's it's odd because what we like is kind of being fooled, but not fooled too much. So if you think about it, it doesn't always a good or a bad joke. A very bad joke is either one which is so obvious everyone knows where it's coming from. Or it's so clever, no one gets it. So, you know, stand-ups do this thing, they tell their really clever joke they've been really proud of, and they tell it, and no one laughs, and, and the, the stand-up's got to say something like, oh, well, they, they make the flow-over-the-head thing, um, gesture, to cover their own sort of backs. But it's that thing, we, we seem to enjoy sort of like this, this sort of like constant thing of, of having something which we don't quite get, we don't see it coming. So, in a sense, we're shown we're not that smart. And th- but then we get it in the end, and that seems to be the, the fundamentally satisfying thing. So it's this combination. And I think a lot of hu- is humour a bit like that, too, in the sense that, you know, a lot of the best humour is where, um, you know, we're, we're kind of... So, like, with Alan Partridge, again, to take him as an example, <coughs> we're, we're taking on laughing at him, but then we do see that we're kind of like him as well. 
So it's this, this combination of like that. I don't get it. I do get it. It's me. It's not me. It's this strange that, place. Again, there's a question about ownership. I can tell you jokes. I used to do this party trick. I did two things at university that were any good and still managed to graduate with a degree in law. Um, that shows how easy things were back then. Um, <laughs> one was I could cook anything from pe- the contents of people's fridges and cupboards. Mm-hmm. And the other was I could tell a joke on pretty much any subject. Now, for me, telling jokes is a little bit like going to the gym. Yeah? yeah. Whereas humour is like running the actual race, if you see what I mean. So Same. there is an appreciate. I could tell you jokes, and maybe you'll laugh and maybe you won't. But one thing I do in the live show, it just, it's... It's literally a lawyer's mind uh, and being a live broadcaster and loving words and language and really liking people. I mean, I love people. I mean, anyone that's heard anything I do on Radio 4 knows it's all about people um, for me. They're the stars of, of what we do on Radio 4. And the thing is that if I riff with you, if I spontaneously uh, ad lib with you about something, that laugh seems, in my experience, to be significantly deeper than a joke that is somehow um, unattributable. It's never mine. Do you know what I mean? Or even if it is mine, it comes with experience. Do you know what I mean? Like that Hindu joke. I told it in a way, I don't know if, if you're tuned to watching comics, but I told it in a way knowing you were going to laugh because I've had a laugh for that thousands of times. Yeah? So for me, I deliver it in a way. And again... Some of you aren't sure whether I'm funny or not. I know I am. Because, it, do you know what I mean? Like a surgeon knows he can save a kid's life. Slightly more important than what I do. Slightly. But there is a, a, a confidence thing about, you're, you're fine with me. I've done this before. Therefore, you're going to laugh. But when you riff, I own that. Or we own that. Yeah? So automatically, if I was a gig, that lady in the blue shirt, I'd automatically riff with you because I'm getting so much back from you. I know that. Yeah? And the Sikh gentleman there, I would absolutely work with because it would be hard-earned if I got a laugh from him, the rest would appreciate that he's gone to his own and he's had a laugh, so he must be good. So personalised... No, but that's how it works. It's almost that Machiavellian, you know? You kind of... There is, we own that moment, whereas somebody else owns the joke. So I think that's the difference. I'm now dying to do a complex joke and a simple joke to see what reaction we get. Can I do that? You got him. What's brown and sticky? A stick. <laughs> okay, so could you try and look more disdainful, sir, in the black shirt? <laughs> because I still feel some semblance of uh, personal integrity intact. Um, and my other, uh, which is a social worker, knocks on a door. An eight-year-old boy answers the door with a cigar in one hand and a vodka martini in the other. And the social worker says, excuse me, Sonny, are your parents in? And the boy says... What the fuck do you think? <laughs> now, interestingly, I don't mean to be ainly retentive about this, but think, if you can, about the shape of both those laughs. Yeah? The second laugh was like a, a deep wave. And it actually started... It, there was undulations in it, quite a little like a wave. It moved like that. And it ticked at the end. Yeah? That was as much part of the shared experience of getting the gag as the individual reactions to it. The first one, there wasn't much to think about. So it was a <laughs> from about four people. <laughs> so I think that's quite... I think you're absolutely right. We've just... 
I can write a PhD on that now, can't I? Yeah, yeah you got to do a PhD. I mean, funding's the problem. <laughs> I mean, the risk of dis- disappearing up sort of our own sort of rears. I mean, I, I as long do as it's not each other's, which <laughs> I do. Although think... apparently, we can get married. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do think, you know, philosophically, what's, what I find really interesting about comedy and why I think it's actually quite important is the, is the way in which it does seem to be a particularly acute way of dealing with, you know, what uh, serious French philosophers have talked about the absurd, you know, the absurdity of the human condition. And I do kind of think, that in a way, you know, Monty Python is kind of like, it's, it's English existentialism. It's like you know, the Sartre and Camus did the French version. It's all very, you know, life is absurd and it's all black polonex and despair. And, and the, the, exactly the same thesis is being presented in Monty Python, except instead of the, the long face, you just laugh at it. It's hilarious. And if you think about it, all, you know, all, the, all the Python films, they're all about, you know, postmodernism is often sort of mocked, and I think a lot of postmodernism is nonsense. But what postmodernism gets right is in the sense we do live in a time where we've given up on the beliefs in these grand narratives. And all the Python films about dismantling grand narratives. So the story of Christ becomes a story of a guy who's, you know, mistaken for the Messiah by a bunch of misguided people. Holy Grail, you know, Quest of the Grail, meaning of life at the end. And, and I think this is why, in this, in this, for this time in particular, you know, in a sense, humor has this important role. We have, to, we have to come to terms with the fact that life is fundamentally ridiculous. And you can either, like, go down a Camus route and go, well, you know, how do we sort of uh, pull off despair? I, I'm a, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm, I think philosophy is fascinating. I think it is. Um, <laughs> therefore, I am. Um, uh, as a great philosophy joke, I'll save up for the end. It's shit, so I can go home and get the bus if you don't laugh. Um, I suppose... Th- Here's what I don't know. Sartre, Camus, um, they, were they part of the establishment? Were they part of the main body? Or were they, I mean, I always think of Camus as L'Etranger, and also he was a goalkeeper. So I always think he has that. I made a documentary really for based on that, by the way. Um, I always think, and Sartre as well, I think it's being from outside. Mm. Whereas I think Python, you picked the one red rag to this <laughs> bull. Um, I think Python were the establishment. Yes? Yeah. And it's so much easier, you know. It's not, okay, so if I can take a, a left turn slightly. I believe, um, politically and philosophically as a nation, that tomorrow, if I were the Prime Minister, uh, I'd hold a snap election and we should definitely have 50% women MPs. I think we should force FTSE 100 companies to have 50% women on the boards. I think in any publicly funded body, 50% of people in positions should be women. Now, people say to me in return, well, why? That's simply, you know, we're not getting the best people to do the jobs. You know, that's, you know, using a network to give people breaks. I'm saying, well, that's how men have done it for two or three hundred years. We don't see it that way because we're so used to it. You know, we don't by any means have the best men. We do not have the best male MPs, that's for sure. Yeah? So, you know, and similarly with Python, I think when you're on the, I think men in positions of power in this country are forgiven mistakes that women would be jumped on for, for, for making. Similarly with Python, I think Python, it's easy to have a go at the establishment when that is what you are. Mm. Whereas for me, it's, it's the, the reverse of me having a go at immigrants. Yeah? I can do it because I'm part of them. Yeah? Yeah, Nick yeah. Griffin can't because he's a racist, misogynist, homophobe. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, do, I do see the point in that. And I, I don't know... Uh, I, I, there, is, there is something in that. There's this question of, you know, in order to be able to laugh, 
I mean, yeah, people say you've got to laugh, don't you? And there's, there's a whole sort of good, good sort of strain of humour about people wanting people to laugh in inappropriate circumstances. So to go back to Blackadder Goes Forth, remember there's that great scene where he meets his firing squad, and the firing squad come in and say, we're your firing squad. And they're being all jokey with him in this way that British people are supposed to be, you know, whatever the situation, we'll have a laugh, don't we, and all that. And, of course, the humour for us is that it's ridiculous. They've had to shoot him, and they're trying to make him laugh. But he see, can't, is, he can't do that. This is why having any discussion about humour in Britain is sort of, in a way, it's beautiful but redundant, because, A... We are the best at it. I mean, that's sort of unquestionable. And B, what we have in this country, nobody else has, which is that sense of self-deprecation. Mm. I'll tell you this story because it's fucking hilarious and it's true. I was working at the Edinburgh Festival a few years ago and I was sharing a space with the Chippendales. Do you know the Chippendales? <laughs> Does anyone not know the Chippendales? <laughs> okay. You will, sweetheart. Um, <laughs> Chippendales are a male dance troupe. They take their clothes off and they're all buff and muscular, like me. Um, but I choose to let my mind impress, which is why I'm giving up. Um, <laughs> and so we're doing a big press night, and they asked me, because I'm a Scottish boy, they asked me to host the press night. So we're doing the rehearsal uh, for the press night to get the lights right in this big theatre in Edinburgh. I'm very excited. It's Edinburgh. I love going to Edinburgh. Um, and I'm standing at the front of the stage in my host position, and I have two of the Chippendales behind me. And I don't know if anyone that's worked in this business, hanging around is the single most annoying aspect of what we do. So hanging around, waiting for someone to change a light. Um, and I hear the Chippendales behind me having this conversation. Now, you've got to bear in mind, I'm just dressed like this. They, it's a dress rehearsal. There's nobody there but us. But they've come out, and you know the trousers that come off with the Velcro? You can leave your hair on and nothing else. Because they just love themselves so much. You know? <laughs> and they're having this conversation behind me, uh, word for word. And one says to the other, um, so then I said, well, I said, when's your husband coming home? And she says, he won't be home till later. And I said, well, why don't you get that big pack of peanut butter, smear it all over uh, your belly, and let's have some fun. Now, <laughs> when you work in comedy, there is a moment in your life where you see in the crosshairs of your, of your rifle an opportunity to fire a brilliant bullet of insight. I felt that. I had this one moment to come up with this line, and the line was there. I had to do it. I'll smear some peanut butter on your belly and let's have some fun. At which point I turn around and I say, what an unfortunate way to find out you have a nut allergy. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> and one Chippendale looked to the other and said, Did she have an allergy? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it was probably fine. We had sex. And, um, and I just thought, oh. <laughs> That's the difference between us. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean, Americans think irony is a description for something ferrous. We see it as, you know... I mean, I've l- l- lately removed a man from my friendship circle um, because I couldn't... I know this is very Google Plus. Um, I couldn't quite work out why I wasn't gelling with him mm. until I realised on my birthday this year that he's very good at taking the piss out of other people but mm. will never take it out of himself. And the one thing about me is you don't need to take the piss out of me because I will always do it before you and I will be far better <laughs> at taking the piss out of me because I know me better than you. You know, we have that thing in, in Glasgow particularly. In Britain in general, we are self-deprecating, yeah. you know? 
Um, but that is because we're brilliant. But that's a really important function of it, isn't it? It's, it's, it's this pretension puncturing aspect. Although you say, um, you know, the British, we don't have a monopoly on that. I think one of the things I really like about The Simpsons is that it's constantly puncturing the pretensions of people. And actually, yeah, I, I must, I, I'm not really one for funny anecdotes, but um, I, did, I, I did a couple of talks on philosophy in The Simpsons. And one of them was in Glasgow, funnily enough. And uh, I arrived at Glasgow, and I'd, I'd been travelling, and I was tired, and I was thirsty and really tired, and I thought, I need to wake up and I need to rehydrate. So before doing this talk, which was 90 minutes with You're the clips, only person in Glasgow that uses the term rehydrate. Though. Yeah. <laughs> we call it gold for a pint. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I thought, I, I had a load of water, I had a load of water, <laughs> a load of water and a double espresso, right? And then I did this 90-minute thing. Now, now, some people in the audience here who are, uh, will recognise what the effects of having lots of water and a double espresso are on your um, <laughs> urinary tract or whatever it is. You know, basically, after about 20 minutes, I realised I made a huge mistake. I needed the loo. And I thought, I'm a grown adult here. You know, I'm a grown man. I can see this through. But that's a myth, isn't it? You know, I mean, like, I remember being like 16, you know, being a kid and thinking, when I grow up, I will never be desperate for the loo again. Uh, little, did, <laughs> li- little did I know that, you know... There's Is that this, the extent of your dreams, <laughs> by the way, as a child? I, it'd still be wonderful. It's a single thing to improve life. And so I, and I thought, I'm not going to th- make it through this thing. What am I going to do? Now, I was showing clips. So what I, did, I put a clip on, and I knew it lasted about five minutes or something. I didn't know the building at all. I snuck out the side, <laughs> went to find the toilet. I was always aware in the back of my mind were these stories you hear, people who go off the stage with a radio mic and hoping that I wouldn't hear this thing. But I thought, no, um, that won't happen. They won't hear me pissing because they turn the mic off when the clips are showing. And I got back in time. So I got back in time. But I thought the point is, my whole point, one of the points about my talk was, I was saying how good, you know, how important The Simpsons is for puncturing pretension and I thought I've actually got to tell this story because you know there's a classic thing yeah I'm there as this kind of philosopher in inverted commas talking about stuff and this is a classic situation where you know when you when you spout off in these kind of events you know one presents oneself as a person of the mind of intellect and you sort of like you know you set aside all these things about your your pathetic physical weaknesses so I actually told people about what happened actually I think people didn't want to know they thought it was too much information but um but I think yeah. that probably makes you a better philosopher for being able to connect the esoteric to the real actually it's very real yeah <laughs> but, 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 but the point about the Simpsons I wanted to make was that surely unlike the life of Brian you can't watch the life of Brian on one level you have to get the satire and the irony mm. for it to hold together Whereas I sometimes watch The Simpsons with people who just think it's a cartoon yeah. and they don't see the social satire and they don't... It's difficult for us to mm. unknow what we know and you know, to, to view things in a way that's fundamentally different. But it does seem to me sometimes... Because you know, I've met quite a few Americans. Any Americans here? Well done. Well done on having a passport. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which part of America are you from, sir? Yeah, well, that's Europe, really, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) City or state? City. Whereabouts in the city? Uh, Midtown Manhattan. Fucking great. He's one of us, really, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, So I think that, that in a sense, is... I mean, I don't know if you feel that about... Well, one thing I think think that which is interesting, you're talking about the... being at the heart of the establishment it being easy to mock when you're in the establishment. The Simpsons plays this game all the time. It's on Fox, right? 
and you know, and and you get all the merchandise, and they are constantly making these self-referential jokes. There's one episode where Bart becomes a kind of child hero because he gets his walk-on part in Crusty the Clown. He's a boy, he, he keeps, he, he walks on and he knocks something over and goes, I didn't do it, and everyone laughs. And then he becomes just the I didn't do it kid. And then all these, and then all these Bart Simpson toys, you know. And, and, and they do adverts for, like, Nandos. I mean, on, on some of the DVDs you get little extras and you see these adverts they do. So, like, you know, you've got Homer Simpson who, who's meant to be comical partly because he's an undiscriminating pig who will eat anything in front of him. And he advertises wrong with that. And, and, he, and he advertises Nando's chicken, right? So you'd think, why would someone think it would be an endorsement of Nando's chicken <laughs> that Homer Simpson eats it? But of course, the reason is that it's uh, on the one hand it undermines it, but it's also humans often very reassuring, isn't it? We're, we're reassured that yeah, we're all just these flawed, flawed <sighs> characters. Yeah, I, like think everyone that's else. Such, I think that's such a positive take on it. I think it's more cynical <laughs> than that. Well, it's both things, yeah. Well, I mean. The Danny Minogue adverts for the milk, right? Has anyone seen these adverts? Danny Minogue, uh, Kylie's sister, um, <laughs> who does this thing advertising a brand of milk. I was watching it with my girlfriend the other night, and it's been on a few times, and it's really simple. I used to direct commercials, so I know how simple it is, and I know how cheap it is. One shot, Danny Minogue, this milk here, uh, it'll change your life. Uh, you know, extra vitamins, try it for two weeks. That's it, one shot. Mr. McGuffin, does she own the company? What's, what, is, is that a spoof? Is that for real? My girlfriend was telling me that this morning got uh, uh, chastised by the network because Danny was a guest and mentioned the milk on air for too long. And actually, I think we've got to the point of the story. I think we've got to the point that things lack subtlety altogether. It's about the free market. Mm. It's just about there's some milk, buy it. <laughs> and it's sinister it's sinister because there's no attempt to woo us. There's no romance. There's no hairpin bend in the Tuscan countryside. You know what I mean? There's no overfilling bath with a woman eating a chocolate. You know what I mean? There's no Gary Lineker falling in a, a manhole, person hole, forgive me. Um <laughs> And I think that is sort of what The Simpsons might have been doing with the Nando's thing, which is playing, because there's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah. So Nando's aren't going to come out and go, how dare you, because it's good publicity. No, no, it wasn't Nando's advert. It wasn't a spoof. They did an advert for Nando's. You see what I mean? They, yeah. they, they, so, so the same people are satirising... Yeah, and, and this is where I think this is the tricky thing with humour as well, because on the one hand, you know, satire is always... Um, you know, people love satire as being, you know, speaking truth to power and everything. But actually... Um, satire only really works if you're comfortable with it, isn't it? And I think that um, uh, some, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Amanda Iannucci said something to this effect that the problem is that, it's, you know, it's that satire works in that sweet spot where you're able to, um, you know, it's, I suppose people are complicit enough in it or comfortable enough with it that they don't actually find what you're saying offensive and therefore not funny. And, and The Simpsons kind of, I think, plays with that. It kind of reassures us that basically we're all stupid, the system's stupid, Fox is corrupt, and it, you know, everything's so absurd, it doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. So it, it's, there's a kind of nihilism, isn't yeah. there? You know? it's, it's kind of. Well, uh, is it nihilism or well, anarchy? Well, it's like, you know. It's more anarchic than nihilistic in so far as it's a- active, yeah. isn't it? Isn't, well, I mean, fuck, I'm sitting here with philosophers arguing about nihilism and anarchy. Know <laughs> your place, son. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I think, actually, the, the single most telling factor in our acceptance of The Simpsons is something I was going to say earlier on, which is we've got this thing in, in writing when you're writing... Uh, when I was writing The Magoons, because it was a world people didn't know, it, it is that the truth has no enemies. Mm. I mean, everything I tell on stage is true, and I embellish because that is the art of the storyteller. But I embellish around a central spine of truth, yes? Mm. I will clothe my stories um, because naked I'm not sure that you're prepared to see them because they're not nearly as funny um, or as warm in reality. Um, but we have this thing in writing, and for anyone that aspires to write fiction, uh, the greatest servant of fiction is fact. Um, and you have this notion that, well, my, ca- my characters, put them on the moon and you should know what they do. Yeah, put them on a desert island and the hierarchy will remain intact and the greatest comedy that's ever been written everyone knows what Del Boy would do if he was here now we have a version of it Yeah, everyone knows what Citizen Smith would do he'd be up at the back you know, calling us all Tories or whatever people know what people do in extreme situations and that is the truth and so long as you have truth on your side one, it doesn't matter if people don't laugh strangely because the single most important thing is that you will sleep at night. If you know that you, you know, the banner you've upheld has been that of truth. Fly under my standard, because yeah. if all I do is tell the truth, I've got no enemies. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's right that uh, 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 comedy has to be based in truth. Though, sorry. No, no, comedy has to be based <laughs> in truth. But uh, again, I'm, I'm just flashing to my head is that Simpsons thing where um, Homer's watching some very bad observational stand-up comedy, you know, does of that very poor kind... Uh, which I always think is like, yeah, hey, guys, guys, have you ever noticed how you like, you know, your girlfriends take half an hour to get ready to go out kind of thing, versions of that. And I don't, I don't find that funny. Um, I know people say in a slightly more clever way than I've just done, but that's often the, the root of the joke. And this is like, it's meant, to be, it's meant to be funny just because it's kind of true. And Homer's laughing this bad comedian goes, it's funny because it's true. And, uh, <laughs> and, because it's not enough that it's true to be funny, is it? That's the point. It's making, it's making the truth funny... And that's, that's the art. And I, I think probably if you're trying to analyse it too much, you won't work out how yeah, it works. But there is that... I mean, I do occasionally do this thing about the difference between men and women. And for me, the difference between men and women is summed up in what happens when you come back from two weeks on holiday. Right? Because wherever you go in the world, what's the first thing you want when you come back to Blighty having been away for two weeks? Anyone? Cup of tea? Yeah. Because it's amazing. The French can do amazing things in separating eggs and they can't make a fucking cup of tea, Right? Italian pasta sauces are legendary. They can't make a fucking cup of tea. Right? You come home. Now, here's the difference between men and women. A man will go to the fridge with his jacket still on, not turning the light on, illuminating the kitchen with the light inside the fridge, will go for the milk. One of two scenarios. One, there's no milk. Worse, there's milk, but you can tell by simple arithmetic that it's <laughs> off. Okay? Here's what a woman will do. Take the milk... Open it, pour it down the sink, wash it out, rinse out the thing, put it in the recycling. That's what a woman does, not a man. (laughs) Now that's not funny, but it's true. And I think those things where it's not about... Again, that's funnier than you're giving it credit for. um, Where it's not about women being stupid and men being clever... I think there is a genuine disconnect between the genders because we're different genders. And if you can be cleverer, not that I was, but some people are, to go slightly deeper and mine that difference. Women's brains do work in a different way. 
and necessarily so. They, they are physical entities that are different from us. Now, that's a whole different conversation. But I do think women think differently from men. For example, directing. Directing's woman's work. Directing films and television and plays. Actually, this is the great misogyny of our age. That work is actually better suited to women, in my experience, but men seem to have a stranglehold on it. Yeah, but I mean, the, the thing, I, I, I don't really want to open it up into questions a bit, but I mean, the thing about that is that the shifting perceptions about whether it's true or not. See, that story you told, I didn't recognise because I'm the kind of effeminate man who will take the fridge, pour it down the sink, and rinse it out, right? You'll never smell it. And, and, uh, do you smell your own farts? Um, I'm sure I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I might sniff it, I don't know if I, yeah, I'd smell it, that's true. But I guess, you know, I think, I think for me, a lot of the sort of the gender humour, I don't, right, because I think that actually it rests on comfortable assumptions about differences between genders. And, you know, I'm not saying there aren't but differences. But I'm certain in all the times you've heard comics, you've never heard anyone make a joke about different treatment of soured milk. No. That's my point. Whether it's funny, whether it's not, <laughs> and clearly it's not for you guys, it's the attempt to look at something different that isn't predicated on a superiority or an yeah, inferiority. Yeah, yeah. It's that other people say women aren't... I book a lot of stand-up comedy, um, myself and MC Nights, and a lot of female comics have told me, nobody book, you know, these two female comics met on one of my gigs, I'm like, D- don't you guys know each other? We do, but we're never both booked. Yeah. You never have more than one woman on a, a ticket, even if you have one. And I kind of think, really, life's too short, I'll just book funny people. Yeah. You know, if you've got breasts or a penis, that's a bonus one way or another. It really ought not to come into it. Yeah. I think maybe uh, take the opportunity now to see uh, if uh, there I are said questions. Penis, I'm sorry. <laughs> the two people who have their hands up do as well. Should we go with them? Yeah, three of them. Please don't go. I'm begging you to stay. Okay, we'll start here. Uh, what, there'll, there'll be a microphone if you could wait for it to arrive. The humour I find interesting is the humor that uh, is made in countries with totalitarian governments sort of protective humor it wasn't a communist country that didn't have a whole string of jokes uh, dedicated against their regimes which might have meant that the teller of the jokes let alone the listener could end up in jail so could you address that notion of humor in Societies of that sort. <laughs> yeah, in the next two minutes. Um, I think, it, it, again, I don't know if there are any Jewish people here, um, but if one considers what the Jewish race has been through just in the last 80 years, let alone the millennia that preceded that, um, the fact that there is this thing called Jewish humour, and it's as funny as it is, talks it to the point you're making about... Uh, laughing in times of adversity um, and you need to touch on it too if we, if we can't laugh in our darkest hours then what is left of us if we can't see the, the humorous light at the end of a tunnel and be assured it isn't the light of an oncoming train then what is left for us so I think that, is that the Mandela line is they can take everything else away but they can't take away your, your knowledge your education and I think that's what humour is about. If you can be making jokes as they prepare to shoot you in the firing squad, then your memory outlasts the sound of the bullets somehow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously a lot of humour is about 
you know, it's, it's, it's a bonding thing, isn't it? If you can, going back to what you said right at the beginning about how the, there's that personal element, you want your life partner to be someone you can share a sense of humour with. You share a joke with someone, it's a way of bringing yourself together. And if, it, if it's a joke that you can't share with the other people, it's also a way of distinguishing yourself from them. And I think that's, and, and it's, so, it's so important whether or not that joke is therefore the, the power, told by the powerful or the weak. You know, the kind of joke where it's the powerful, telling jokes about the weak. You know, is is nasty and is it, it brings people together in, in a way which is oppressive. When you're the oppressed, and you tell jokes about the powerful. That's all right. As your positions changed, as I say, potentially the same joke could become um, could change its character from them being a very benign, uh, bonding, anti-power thing to being a very malign kind of us and them outgroup. Type it's very inter- uh, interesting um, uh, in Django Unchained. Uh, the director said there were two kinds of violence in the film, one belonging to the whites who were slave owners and the other to the sort of comeuppance violence mm. of slaves coming back. And, and on one hand, it was exactly the same violence, mm. but he says that actually there are two kinds going on. It's interesting, if you speak to any East African uh, Indians, um, they were uh, complicit in the racism of Africa, but they'll never talk about it. So there's, you know, and then they'll come here and they'll complain about racism. So there's this kind of complexity about, you know, these kind of big, overarching uh, kind of concepts. And humour's no different. Okay, so young man, troubled-looking man. Yes, he is. Yeah, he smiled. Not troubled. Um, Yeah, my question was um, regarding the celebration of difference. So I just wondered if what you thought um, about humour and whether humour was legitimated when it's in celebration of difference. You think that's what makes it humour, you know, kind of real yeah. humour? Intent. I mean, having studied law for <laughs> three years, I think intent is a very difficult... I think that's what I was alluding to with that Wilding quote at the beginning about not quite knowing. It's that, you know, the, the, the notion of absolutes. You know, how do you know a chair's a chair? How do you know a cat's a cat? This kind of sense of... And I think there's a similar sense of absolute intent with something. Um, I, it's interesting, today of all days, I'm going to play a gig in Torrington on Thursday night, uh, Thursday night, and the local Indian restaurant have complained to my producers that that was rude to them the last time I was there. Now, I'm affronted that I might be perceived to be rude. So I've been on, trying to phone all day to find out what had happened to be rude, because... There are times when I intend to be rude, but there are other times when I have absolutely no intention. And it, it appalls me that someone hasn't read that. Have I made a, an ill-judged joke in that case? Have I said something inappropriate, meaning it to be well-intended? But you'll understand from that that intent is as much with the recipient as with the giver. I can argue till I'm blue in the face that I didn't intend to offend you. I think that's what's really important with the Frankie Boyle School of Comedy as well. I'm not sure, but he's a hilarious Frankie Ball thing. So he lives next to my brother. We have these big communal gardens, and I was sitting there next to Frankie Ball. I know Frankie. The last time I saw Frankie was in soft furnishings at John Lewis. I kid you not. <laughs> he had a duvet and three, te- uh, three pillows, and we had a conversation about how he likes to sleep with one, but his wife likes to sleep with two. Bizarre conversation with the darkest man in European comedy. Um, and he shouts out, his kid's name was Thor! And I said, that's hilarious, that's not his name, Thor's not his name, that's fucking it. That's 
What did you call him Thor? Is that a nickname? Was, His name's Thor. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I said, that's a brilliant name for a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no intent to offend him. And he wasn't offended because he knew that. But I think Frankie has got the intent to offend people. Sorry. That's okay. I'm talking too much, as you Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but, I mean this thing about, also this thing about, you know, the, 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 the target, you know... It, you have to be able to sort of laugh at everyone, including yourself, in order f- for things to work. You know, if, I, if someone says I'm said a joke and it's a joke about, you know, let's say I know a joke, a, a, a good joke about Sikhs, which I don't, and then I told another joke about Sikhs, another joke about Sikhs. And after, after a while, you think, hang on a minute, why are you telling only jokes about Sikhs? And, and you, you need to sort of do it around. This is why I think, again, The Simpsons on the whole does a very good job because everyone gets it in The Simpsons. Everyone does. Here's, you know. the, here's the difference Sikhs are the Irish of India, they tell jokes about us. Okay, um, although more Sikh blood was shed in the gaining of the independence of India, more of our state was given away, and they make jokes about us. There would be no modern-day India without the Sikhs, yet somehow we allow jokes to be told about us. Here's the difference. There are Sikh jokes, and there are jokes about Hardeep. Mm. Hardeep jokes are fucking hilarious. Sikh jokes, don't, they don't have a name, which is why jokes about women and mother-in-laws aren't funny. A joke about Jeanette... Or shushy is funny because it's personalised. It isn't about all of you. That's the, the, you know that's the problem. Is when we're you know. So I think we need to celebrate difference, but we need to do it intelligently. We need to do it the way Alexis Sale does it, not the way Jim Davidson does it. We've got a question from America. Uh, yeah, Hardeep, uh, I have a question. You said earlier that you didn't think that people should be identified like actors by being black or brown. Or that, you know, women comedians shouldn't be identified for women. Just take the best actor or the best comedian. But then you also said that if you were in charge, you would have half the MPs be women and half the people in FTSE companies, you know, be women. Aren't those two statements sort of in contradiction with each other? Uh, Especially when you consider that part of the reason that you identify people as by their race or ethnicity might be to correct that inequity that you were talking about. Um, You and I speak as um, uh, enlightened individuals, yeah, clearly. Um, you are, and I'm hoping very much to hang on your coattails. Um, while on the face of it, those look like contradictory statements. Uh, one is uh, about detail, and the other is about um, a societal responsibility to um, correct um, uh, an obvious in- uh, inequity. So um, one isn't about, as an individual, I will not pick people on their gender or their race, or their religion, or their manifestly wonderful dress sensor. Um, But as society, we need to put structures in place where there is something approaching equality. It's like, why would you give the vote to women? You're just giving it to women. That's unfair, surely, isn't it? Why should they have the vote? Why do they need the vote? They're too busy in the kitchen and looking after... When are they going to have time to vote? Okay, social satire's not working either. <laughs> <laughs> really short list of what can we get. Was that, did that answer your question or not? Yeah, sort of. I just think, you know, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's sort of, you can make the comment in a way that you could seem like you're contradicting yourself, but I understand that. Like, yeah, but I also have to say that I mean, there is a day-to-day philosophical uh, imperative, and then there is a wider societal imperative. And whilst those may seem contradictory, for example, I am against war. 
but I'm in favour of war if it stops innocent people being massacred. So we would, if I was running things, we would have gone into Rwanda and we would have tried to save some of the 1.2 million lives. We would have tried, but I'm against war. So in that sense, I'm a contradiction. But quite a cute one, yeah? It would be nice, actually, if, uh, if, if any women want to ask questions. Then we can have <laughs> can I just say, I just see you as people and not as women, really attractive women and men. I don't... <laughs> OK, uh, there's a very attractive young man there with his hand up. Thanks. Um, I'm just interested in why people don't find things funny. And I suspect there are at least two reasons. One is that you don't like the person. You don't like what they stand for. So even if a, a particular joke is well-crafted, if you know it comes from somebody of a political persuasion that you dislike, mm. you think it's contemptible rather than funny. The other is that there's a hugely competitive aspect to humour. And I think this comes out when... I, was, I think I was listening to a Radio 4 programme recently about the, the backstage, what it's like backstage on the stand-up circuit, how ferociously competitive it is, how you've got to be funny all the time, and how the most humiliating thing would be to try to be funny and not be funny. And that's really like... A, that's why they talk about dying a death. And I wonder about the competitiveness, because if you imagine two very egotistical people um, in a party or at a party or something, each trying to outsmart the other in humour, I mean, trying to attract attention, trying to be the funniest, you can see how the one who feels he's losing might feel desperate because he's not being as funny as the other person. And he's also desperate not to find his competitors' jokes funny, because if he finds them funny, he's lost. I don't know I'm just saying too much about myself, I don't know, but I just wonder <laughs> if that's a, an observation that you share. me as well, let me just say. Um, I think, uh, again, I refer back to the very astute observations you made earlier about the ability to find empathy with someone one doesn't necessarily like. People don't like Homer, mm. but you can't help... Oh, he's very... He's, he's the lo most loved father in America. But, you know what I mean? But you, you love him, but you may not like him. Yeah. You know? I once had this conversation with my Punjabi dad. The distinction between love and like was lost on him completely. Um, the other thing about competitive... Uh, again, you know those jokes, the kind of Pristorius-type jokes, the, the Princess Diana jokes? These, I know the people that write those jokes. I've worked with them. They're comedy writers that write... They've written horrible things about me on one or two occasions. Um... They're not people you want to spend time with. They're not people you will be at a party with. Because you have to ask... You know, if a man can unscrew and remove his leg in terms of his comedy, there is damage. There is a story. If, just to mean, if someone's got a prosthetic limb, there's a story of hurt and pain that predicates that. Similarly with that sort of comedy, if you can see, if you can walk through those doors of perception, then something's happened... You know, do you know what I mean? Exactly. They're fucked up people. They're not nice. That's why they do that job. And that's why nobody knows who they who they are because they can't graduate beyond that because they don't have the social skills because they don't know. So to be beaten by them socially is no great loss at all. I mean, the thing is, it's just what you're saying because I think there are lots of things like that where people sort of almost do a sort of like there I've got you, I've debunked you kind of thing where they say. The exact same thing said by a different person, different context, you find differently. Therefore, you're guilty of some kind of like bias or distorted perception. So people say stuff like, you know, like food, blind food tests or something. If you know it's a fair trade coffee uh, or you think it's Nescafe, you, you prefer it 
one way or the other, depending on what your preferences are, you know. And ah, that shows you're being distorting. But I actually think that's kind of the wrong way of looking at it. I think that it, you know, all, all experiences are in a context. And what you can call distortion is actually seeing it in the proper picture. And so for that sense, a joke which told by someone who you like, who is trying to be generous and hospitable and help the party go along well, and, and, and you'd find really funny, told by someone who's been dominating the thing for the last two hours and is a bore and is always trying to show how funny they are, the exact same thing. It's quite appropriate that we find it more funny in one situation than the other, I think. I just want to let other people come in. It's, uh, oh, one down here. One down here, yeah. Well done. <laughs> it's just a, a quick two short questions. Um, one, I want to ask you if you think we are consuming more humor today than we were five or ten years ago. And, um, sorry, I'm, I don't know how to phrase that better. <laughs> and the second question is, um, what is the reason for that? Is it a function of media, television penetration, etc., etc., etc.? Thank you. We, it's much like... Um, Tesco's beef. We are consuming more, <laughs> but quite how much of it's funny. <laughs> you know, there's more television than's ever been available. I seem to watch less than I've ever watched in my life. So I think there's a great deal more co- quantity and uh, discernibly less quality. Mm. Oh dear. Yeah. The, yeah. Yes, you. It's Frankie Boy with that beard. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> was Bernard Manning funny? Uh, Bernard Manning was a comedy genius. No, 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 no. Do you know what? That's the truth. That's what made his racism and sexism yet more deplorable. If he was somebody we could afford to write off, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. He had exceptional comic timing. His ability to deliver a gag, his ad-libbing, was second to none from the tradition he came from. And that's what made the pain of being the subject of his jokes, so much more painful. He, is, he was brilliant. That's the point. I hated pretty much every word that came out of his mouth. But to be able to be honest about his craft, because the craft lives on beyond the man. The material will change as mores do. Uh, one in the middle here. Yeah, I don't know. It even hurts me to admit that, but it's true. <coughs> Thank you. To comedy to be extremely funny, does that have to be extremely risque and on the edge and of controversy, or can it just be, or is there any great examples of good, clean, funny, great clean stuff? Funny. Three words, Mrs. Brown's boys. <laughs> I just judged the Royal Television Society Comedy Award last week. Inexplicable. I don't understand the phenomenon of Mrs. Brown's boys, but it garners incredible viewing figures. There is comfort in comedy. You know, which is why we'll often laugh at the same joke or the same style of joke. We go to pantos, we know what's going to happen, but we'll laugh. There's comfort in familiarity. It doesn't always breed content. Is, is that comfort comedy like comfort food? I mean, it's like it's it just completely uncomplicated. You don't have to... Yeah. doesn't challenge you, doesn't That's interrupt anything. That's why people like me that think they're clever, think they're witty, think they're humorous. I'm not. I would play to an empty room while they played t- to this chamber a hundred times over. I was so much more intelligent than they are. But that, do you know what I mean? Technically, I think I'm funnier than they are. But it doesn't matter. 
don't have it. They've got it. Some comedy can be sweet, so I can't do it. Like this short joke, which is like the, the guy who finds a monkey and he, he, he takes, asks the policeman what he should do with it, and he says, take it to the zoo, and he sees him the next day and he's still got the monkey with him. He says, I thought I told you to take him to the zoo. He said, yeah, we did, we had a lovely time, and today we're going to the circus. <laughs> now, I really love that joke, and I love it because it's so sweet and innocent. There's not, no edge. Gavin and Stacey has no edge. It's beautiful, and it, but it's about characters. Um... It seems to me that one of the important things about humour is the way you feel about the person who is telling a joke or being humorous. I can't imagine under any circumstances laughing at anything that Nick Griffin would say because of my attitude towards Nick Griffin. On the other hand, when I've seen Billy Connolly, he comes on the stage and people are laughing before he's even said anything because there's a positive feeling about that person. And so the person then is going to be appreciated just on the basis of their expectations. I can't imagine laughing at anything that Margaret Thatcher would say because of she my attitude towards <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. Oh, let's smash the poor. Let's break the unions. Let's destroy the country. It was a fucking laugh. But it's interesting. I've probably sworn more than anyone you've met socially. But I would also, well, with the exception of the, the blonde-haired young man um, who writes the Swearing Dictionary of East London... Um, but equally, I would imagine you probably trust me more and have warmed to me, not because of the language, but that thing we came back to about intent. You know that on a dark night, if I pull up next to you, I'm going to help you change the flat tyre. Do you know what I mean? It, and it is interesting what you say. We need to look beyond words. You know, there's, there's this fascism about certain words you can and can't use. I'll use them all. Yeah, I will reappropriate words and the like. Anyway, there you go, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, one there and then one over here. So, yeah, gentlemen up there. Oh, that was all absolutely fascinating. Um, I was just thinking, one can always tell Glaswegian, but one can't tell him much. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking laugh at that! <laughs> Gold I've been giving you all evening. You laugh at that. It was very unexpected. It was, I thought it was beautifully very delivered. Timing, you see, unexpected. Yeah, That's yeah. the most important thing in comedy, well, by the well, way. Just two things I wanted to, to ask. One was um, when you asked how many Muslims there were in here, I didn't see any hands go up, and it's the no. first tile one or two, and it's probably the lowest proportion of any seminar or meeting that I've been to in this building, in this college, in 25 years. And I'm just wondering whether the question of humour is something which is not a part of the Islamic identification. And if I, take, if I extend that anywhere else and, and come back to what, what is humour, what, what, what do I find funny, what do, you find, what do we find funny? We've told, mentioned a lot of things that we don't find funny, isms, uh, homophobia, sexism, uh, and, and so on. It's been suggested that if we see the positive sides of things, we can actually bring people together. And to me, that is what humour is actually about. But what is humour? What, what is it actually? This, this is, you know, under philos- European philosophy dialogue. What is, the, what, what is inside us that we can call humour? <laughs> Should we start again then? We've got to <laughs> back back. I, this time, answer the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I. Okay, here's an interesting thing. If you look around this room, there are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. There um, is our our Manhattan friend. 
There are some Muslims. There are people from the subcontinent of Africa. There are some people who've travelled as far from you know Hampshire and Bedfordshire. And at one point or another, I've managed to make them laugh. So I think it's reductive in the extreme to suggest within Islam there isn't a sense of humour. Before I knew people were Muslims, I just knew they laughed at you. I grew up with Muslims. You can't be Punjabi and not hang out with Muslims um, unless you lead a very sheltered life. I think the point you make is sort of super-political more than sociological, um, insofar as, the, I think I alluded to it earlier, uh, it's not that we don't know about Islamic humour, we don't really know anything about Muslims in this country, period, apart from the fact that some in Bedfordshire might try and, you know, build some bombs. I mean, it's interesting, you know, a white guy in uh, uh, Omaha kills thousands of people with a bomb. He's a terrible man. If he had been a brown man, Muslims are terrible. It's an age-old fucking story. My, you know, private law tutor, Esme Shapiro, she was Jewish, told me. She was, you know, man steals an apple, he's a thief. Jacob steals an apple, Jews are thieves. That's the problem. Is It's not just humour. It's food, architecture, fashion, art. This whole notion about there not being an enlightenment in Islam, I think it's a fascinating discussion. I don't know if there was or if there wasn't. I'd just like to hear a little bit more about it. I'd like our newspaper column in just slightly more to be about things that are in the real life about Muslims. Look, I don't recognise the Muslims I grew up in with in the coverage I see in the media. Sorry. One of, one of the interesting things that you said, uh, now this, you, you sort of you, immediately universalised humour there. You know, it's not about some people have it, some people mm-hmm. don't have it, that you were able to uh, draw out warmth and laughter from anybody who was here, everybody who was here. And so you have a kind of universality of that. Um, but one of the things that you said was that a joke is a, a sort of self-enclosed thing. And so you have a distinction then between the self-enclosed moment and something much more pervasive and that would be pervading us as human beings rather than just belonging to being either uh, one national identity or ethnic identity or, or, or gendered identity or sex identity. So do you think that we're hooking into something like a human universal when we're talking about humour? I think we are. And more than simply doing it in a, 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 a static... Um, a, a, what's that lovely scientific word for stasis when things aren't moving... Stasis. Stasis. <laughs> um, I think what we what we actually need to do is be, there is a fragmentation in the sense of society and community. Now that's not strictly speaking true. That's kind of from the Luddite tradition. There's a formation of new society, new uh, community, be it online or, or whatever. People are still connecting and engaging. But I think um, what comedy can help us do, as it did with the Jews through the Holocaust. Um, as it you know it did with um, the Yugoslavs, perhaps post Balkan crisis, is it can unify us. It can show us actually we have much more in common than we have apart. It's all something I think we instinctively ought to know, but then comedy shows us that in this this shared consciousness. And also, what's interesting about the observation you made was, I think I perhaps not made that many people laugh that consistently today, but I would have made far fewer laugh, far uh, less often if I'd have just gone with gags. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and also 
you leave the room, you forget the gap, you forget the experience. My intent is for you to leave the room and continue that dialogue, be it internal or extrinsic, but with other people. That's the point. So maybe you will disagree with my implication of 50% women in Parliament, but at least you'll talk about it, you know? Okay, actually on that note where he's inviting you to leave, um, (laughs) I am going to do the same. But uh, before you go, it would be really nice if you could thank both Julian and Hardy for their (laughs) contribution.